Good morning, everyone. Let's open up our Bibles together to the book of Malachi. Um, I know we are currently in a series on the Gospel of Mark, haven't forgotten, uh, but we're going to start in a little bit of a different spot this morning, and hopefully, if I do my job well, it becomes clear why. Now, as we're turning there, um, just a reminder, Malachi is the final book in the Hebrew Bible. It, to this day, uh, represents the last recorded words that God spoke through his prophets to his people. And so they carry an immense weight and significance to the, the people of Israel. Now for time's sake, I'm not gonna read all of the last two chapters, but I, I wanna dive into a few key moments that really set up our text today. And I hope you will forgive me for just jumping in, but I'm really excited about what we get to talk through. So Malachi, Chapter two, we're actually gonna start the very, very last line of chapter two into three. It says this, where is the God of justice? See, says three verse one, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty but who can endure the day of his coming? Skipping down to chapter four. These are the last six verses of the entire Hebrew Bible. Surely the day is coming and it will burn like a furnace. I will do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel, and see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so ends the Hebrew Bible, the final words and promises of Yahweh. The Lord you are seeking will come, but until then, remember the law of Moses and look for the prophet Elijah. And so the people of Israel waited. Now, I went to a Orthodox Jewish elementary school, which is a story in and of itself, and you can ask my parents about that. But I remember that still to this day, when we celebrated Passover, the door of the house was left, was opened, and an extra glass of wine was poured at the meal, just in case Elijah decided to show up. So this, remembering and watching, is what every Jewish boy and girl, every rabbi, every teacher, every Pharisee, every farmer, every single Hebrew person was anticipating this sign. Now with that kind of pressing in on our consciousness, let's jump back into the Gospel of Mark. We are beginning in chapter 9. Uh, and verse one goes like this. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Matthew and Luke also speak about his face being transformed. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses 
who were talking with Jesus. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. I love it. He says something anyway, um, because they were so frightened. But then a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept these matters to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. So if you haven't guessed, this morning's passage is about the transfiguration. That's what it's traditionally called. It's a very big moment. However, for you and I as non-first century Jewish audience, I think for the most part, at least this was my experience, I don't really know what to do with this event, right? There's very little explanation. Moses and Elijah show up, but they don't say anything. We're not really told why they're there. Jesus kind of has this cryptic mark about the um, remark about the kingdom of power in verse one, and then about the presence of Elijah in verse 17. And it all seems really significant, but we don't really know why. And part of the reason why I wanted us to begin in Malachi is sort of have this um, kind of preception of, of what is about to take place. But this morning, what I want to do is break this down a little bit and hopefully answer two questions for us. Firstly, what is actually happening here? What is the historical and prophetic significance of this moment in time? And then secondly, what do we do with it? What, what does it leave us with as Jesus followers? What do we learn from this moment? Sound good? I'm just assuming you're all nodding at home in your beds. Perfect. So first, what's happening here? Now there are so many small and intentional details that Mark wants his readers to see. Once again, details that would have been extremely important to his first century Jewish audience. Um, so there's Moses, right? His presence, directs us to the many layers or parallels between the person of Jesus and the Exodus story and Moses himself. Now we've talked about this loads throughout Mark, right? This kind of um, similarity, but here specifically, we are being drawn to the middle of the book of Exodus, kind of 20, chapter 24 through 34, one of the most profound sections in all of the Hebrew canon of scripture, because what happens in those chapters is that Moses is called to the mountain, Mount Sinai, right? He's called there and it says he is all alone. And then it says after six days, the Lord speaks to him from a cloud, 
Are you beginning to see, hopefully, some similarities, right? Moses is also physically transformed by his time with God, so much so that when he comes down the mountain, he has to wear a veil because his face is shining so brightly. Mm. Now back to Mark. Jesus, after six days, takes his closest disciples up the mountain. He leads them to a place, it says, where they are all alone. And there, from a cloud, God speaks and Jesus is transfigured in radiance, right? Direct parallels between the encounter of Moses, the, the deliverer, if you will, of the people of Israel and Jesus in this moment. However, there is one major and pivotal difference to the story. Moses on Mount Sinai is given what? Two tablets of stone. They are filled with the law and the mm. instructions of Yahweh to the people he chooses, the people of Israel. So Moses stands as this intermediary between Yahweh and the people. But here, Jesus on the mountain, and God simply says, this is my son, listen to him. As one scholar I read put it, Jesus is what God has to say. God is not transcribing onto stone. He is simply presenting his son and saying, listen to him. Just the person of Jesus, his every word is being given at this moment, divine authority. Now we'll jump back to that in a second. What does Malachi say? Remember Moses, look for Elijah. So here on this mountain, Jesus is present with not just Moses, but with Elijah as well. And what is happening is that both physically, the presence of the two of them, but also symbolically, he is holding in tension the law and the prophets, the two ways in which God chose to speak to his people, right? Mm. Which is why Peter wants to put up shelters. He's like, this is it, a new tabernacle. This is the thing that we've been waiting for. Beautiful. This is what Malachi promised. All the signs are lining up. But God has a different idea of what he wants the new kingdom to look like. Now, Jesus, just to clarify this, at the end says, you've, you've missed it. That wasn't the Elijah you were waiting for. Elijah has already come. The voice of the messenger, the prophetic one, he who came to prepare the way, he has already appeared and they have done to him everything they wished. What did they do to him? Just what they did to the prophets, right? Hmm. They refused to listen and finally, the prophet, John the Baptist, was beheaded, was silenced because he didn't represent the thing that they wanted. Now, these are all very interesting and fascinating and important details, but they are not primarily what this moment is about. Because at the end of the day, it's not about Moses and it's not about Elijah. Verse eight says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus, right? These are signs, presence of Moses, 
presence of Elijah. These are signs and symbols that point us, that direct us to something far more profound that is at work. Jesus is not just the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, although he is that. He is not just um, proving his divinity in this moment, although that inadvertently happens. But Jesus doesn't seem concerned with kind of publicly fulfilling anything or, or providing proof, right? If he wanted to provide proof for his divinity, I think he should have invited a few more than three of his closest friends. You know, people are like, no, really, he is the God. Yeah, but like you're his brother and you probably have to say that. And you know what I'm saying? He should have taken more. No, no, what is happening here? is a far greater reality. It is something that connects creation in Genesis to the deliverance in Exodus, to the promise in Malachi, to this very mountain in Mark. And because I can't say it any better than him, I'm gonna read from a portion of N.T. Wright. He explains it like this. It's a longer quote, but stay with me. He says, suppose after all, that the ancient Jewish story of God making the world calling a people, meeting them on a mountain, suppose this story was true, all right? And suppose that this God had a purpose for his world and his people that had now reached its moment of fulfillment. Suppose, moreover, that the purpose of this all had taken human form and that the person concerned was going about doing the things that God's kingdom um, spoke about, coming on earth as it is in heaven. God's space and human space coming together. God's time and human time meeting and merging for a short, intense period. And in that, God's new creation and the present creation are somehow knocking together in unexpected sparks, okay? It is within such a set of suppositions, he writes, that we make sense of the strangest moment of them all. At the heart of the narrative, when the glory of God comes down, not to a temple in Jerusalem, not to the top of Mount Sinai, but into and onto Jesus himself, shining in splendor, talking with Moses and Elijah, drawing the law and the prophets together into the time of fulfillment, the transfiguration as we call it is this central Beautiful. moment. Almost done. What the story of Jesus on the mountain demonstrates for those who have eyes to see or ears to hear is that just as Jesus seems to be the place where God's world and our world meet, where God's time and our time meet, so he is also the place where, so to speak, God's matter, God's new creation is intersecting with ours. What this moment is, it's the beginning of the new creation. It's why Jesus says, some of you will not die before you see the kingdom of power. He's speaking about this, the physical human body of Jesus being transformed, the collision of God's eternal purpose with the very fabric of our material world, the very flesh of our material being. This is the moment, this is the kingdom of power. 
You see, under the old covenant, where did God's presence show itself? What did God make holy? He made a temple holy, right? A physical space. What else do we know he made holy? The Sabbath, a specific day, right? But here, he is doing that with a physical body. The material world, the very substance he has created, the, the, the very thing that makes up humanity is being made holy. It is being made to manifest the divine glory and power of God. What the law and the prophets uh, tried to produce is now being fulfilled in Jesus. Remember the promise? Remember the, the messenger that Malachi spoke about? Remember that he said, the Lord will come? You asked for a God of justice. Well, here he is. And this is what his kingdom looks like. It looks like healing the sick. It looks like bringing sight to the blind. It looks like liberating the captives, honoring the poor, giving a voice to those with none, feeding the hungry, caring for the needy, justice for all humanity, a transfiguration that affects all of mankind, souls and bodies alike, the inaugurated eternal kingdom of God colliding with us here on earth. Here is the fulfillment of the prophecies and the perfection of the law in one simple phrase. This is my son whom I love, listen to him. This is profound. If I had time, I would go on to look at, and this was just a fascinating study. For those of you who want extra credit, you can do this in your own time. But the parallels between the transfiguration, what we've just unpackaged, and the crucifixion. Mm. If I had time, I want to talk about the, the mountain and the hill, the radiance and the nakedness, the pride of Peter and then his betrayal, the disciples who deny him, and the Roman soldier who names him perfectly. But I don't have time for that, so hopefully that whet your uh, appetite a little bit. Go and read them, read them together, meditate on the way in mm. which this story is building beautiful. so beautifully. But because I don't have time, <laughs> uh, let's, let's jump into our second question. Because that is all beautiful and profound and glorious, but what do we do with it? What do we, what do, we do with this moment? Well, amazingly, the answer is quite simple. What does the Father say to those present? Listen to him. The entire message of the transfiguration, Pope Francis writes, is this. Listen to Jesus and follow him. That mm. is what we are meant to take away. Now, at a cursory glance, right, that seems pretty easy. It's kind of obvious. Our whole faith is built on the idea that Jesus is the Son of God uh, whom God loved, right? Mm. But I think it's perhaps one of the most difficult commands in practice because we know that God is not just speaking about an auditory response, right? Can you hear Jesus? Hello, hello, testing. You know, hmm. He's not just speaking about that. The Greek word itself implies both understanding and action. Think back to when you were a child, or if you have children now, you'll understand. But that moment when your parent kind of pulls you aside and goes, now listen to me. Right? You know when they say that, they're not just meaning like, hear the words that are coming out of my mouth, hear the sounds. What's implied is, I want you to hear what I'm saying, I want you to understand it, I want you to, to obey it, right? 
Um, some of you are having flashbacks. What's happening here is essentially the same thing, although perhaps not in a scolding way, but God is saying it to the people, listen to him. Mm. Hear the words of Jesus, seek to understand the words of Jesus and live in obedience to them. You know, earlier in Mark, uh, I think it's chapter four, Jesus speaks about those who are ever seeing but never perceiving, who are ever hearing but never understanding. Because essentially, there are those who will hear but nothing more, right? Nothing more than auditory accumulation of truth. Nothing, nothing is being transformed by just hearing. You can sit in church your whole life and never change. That's hearing. And then there are those who will do what God asked of us, who will listen, who will hear, who will understand, who will obey. And this is what it looks like to be disciples or followers of Jesus. We are called to this. Now, here's why I love the Bible. One of the reasons, okay? It is so honest. <laughs> about the ways in which people fail at the things that God asks of us. Um, because how often do the disciples who are with Jesus hear him, but not listen to him, okay? So we read the gospels now, it seems so obvious. It's like Jesus lays it out for you, right? He says, don't tell them until the son of man raises from the dead. And they're like, I wonder what that means. Where it means physically he's going to raise from the dead, but they don't, they don't see it, right? The Son of Man will suffer. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Jesus predicts his own death, and Peter tells him, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. That's not going to happen, right? Um, Jesus said he would be raised from the dead, and yet the disciples, when he is crucified, they scatter because they are devastated by the fact that he died. Jesus said he came to serve and not be served, and if the disciples are in the corner fighting over who gets to sit on his right and who gets to sit on his left, Jesus loves and meets the Samaritan woman, and yet the two sons of thunder, the two brothers, want to call down fire on all the Samaritans. Can you see the disconnect between what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, and the way in which the disciples are responding? They don't seem to be listening, right? But this is what I love, is that slowly, we read the rest of the New Testament. We begin to see fully and completely a listening takes place that causes submission, that causes transformation, that causes recreation. Because later, this very same John who stood terrified on the mountain writes, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And John did just that. John died in exile. Peter, <laughs> Peter who rebuked Jesus for talking about suffering, Peter who denied Jesus, Peter who ran from the cross, Ugh. who seemed to get it wrong so often, Peter went on to say, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted because of the name of Jesus, you are blessed for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. He wrote these words and then was crucified. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> By the Romans, as was James this week. As I sat reading these stories and I laughed over Peter and then I thought, man, but they got it. They got what it meant to truly and completely and fully listen to their God. And can I be bold enough to say to you and I that true discipleship has no better starting point or end goal than this. It's okay, I can wipe it off. Oh, man, it just hit me this week. They are sacrifices. No better starting point or ending goal than this, to listen. Bonhoeffer wrote, love for God begins with listening. This is where it starts. This is how we love him, slowly and personally in the process, our transfiguration begins. We begin to see the world as God intended. We see our lives as he desires. Our, our will submits to his, our desires reflect his own, our grace for people grows. And then gradually, I want to give more than I want to consume. Mm. Slowly, love becomes easier than hate. Forgiveness, more important than justification. Service, more instinctual than personal satisfaction. This is the fruit we look for, friends. This is how we know that we are not just hearers of the word, but we are listeners of the word. All right, I can't tell if I have mascara all over my face, so <laughs> just going to continue. A few closing thoughts for us today. You know, modernity has many of its own obstacles to listening, right? Practically, we know them. It is very hard to find quiet. It seemed hard before. Now I've got a baby. It's even harder. Um, it's hard to be alone. Our attention spans are scientifically shorter than they have ever been in history. Our minds have been dulled by technology, by the things that we consume. The secular world has, has created a universe that is made up of chaos, okay? And I could go on, right? But these are the barriers that we combat in a practical application of listening. We know these things, and there are some brilliant books on the practicing of listening, um, on the ways in which silent prayer meditation can be so helpful. But as I was praying and reading, I felt like there were two particular challenges to this life of listening. Two things that, that we see in the disciples, that we see in the crowds, that we see in um, those who kind of follow Jesus around. And so I just wanna land with these two things and I think they really apply to us today. Firstly, and I kind of struggled with this word a little bit, but I'll explain it over-familiarity. And here's what I mean. The people of Israel, between Malachi and the arrival of Jesus, had about 450 years, right? So they knew this Messiah. They had been waiting for this God. 
the God of justice for hundreds of years. They knew, or at least they thought they knew what he would look like, what he would do, how he would act, how he would um, liberate them. They had visions of kind of this Moses-esque figure sort of throwing the Romans into the sea, just like God did with the Egyptians. They were familiar, very familiar, with what they wanted the promise to look like, what they wanted Jesus to sound like. But that familiarity created assumptions in them, which led to expectations which were ultimately unmet and ended in their disappointment and the crucifixion of their very Messiah, mm. the one that they had waited for. Because they became over familiar with the idea of what they wanted God to be, not with God himself. And we similarly can become so familiar with the idea of God we hold on to that we get in these cycles, these patterns, these beliefs of what God can say, what he can't say, what he can do, how we would respond. We forget to ask to wait, mm. to listen. We assume behaviors on God. And then when he doesn't do the thing that we want him to, we are disappointed. Yeah. Oswald Chambers asks this question, are you learning to say things after listening to God? Or are you saying things and then trying to make God's word fit in? I heard a story recently, um, it was a friend sharing with me about someone in their life who has decided to get a divorce, there's um, no infidelity or abuse, just kind of decided, I'm not happy, I want out. And it was a tough situation in this case because the person who made the decision said, I prayed about it and I think God's fine with it. Mm. And processing this with my friend and kind of our Christian understanding and do I believe that God is with us in pain? 100%. Do I believe that God loves this individual completely? Yes. Do I believe that God would, would still be faithful even in their decisions? Yes. But do I believe that God would contradict himself when he has spoken clearly about divorce? Would he contradict his own words? Hmm. No. But you see, life creates these situations and then we choose a preferred narrative and rather than asking God, rather than listening, which requires submission, we adjust our familiar Jesus to suit our wills. In truth, we are all guilty of this. We over-familiarize, we justify, we, we, we get God to understand our life rather than understanding his will. Mm. Whereas listening to Jesus requires us to let go of our presuppositions, our expectations. He calls the disciples to honesty. Yes, we see their desires, their preferences. We're not blind to what they want. But what he teaches them is that real listening begins with not my will, but yours be done. Won't you tell me your will? All right, lastly, what gets in the way of us listening? Once again, it's hard to put one word, but, but productivity. And this is what I mean. I love Peter. I was sobbing over him earlier, as you can tell. This is why I love Peter. When Peter doesn't know what to do, he just acts, okay? Um, in our reading today, it says they were so afraid, they didn't know what to do. Peter's like, I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna set up three shelters. We're gonna start this viewing village. People can come and see Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Um, when Jesus is being uh, captured, right? What does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and just starts going at the guards. That is how Peter reacts, 
fear makes him just kind of go, just react. Mm -hmm. Now, I identify with this. I have what my husband affectionately calls squirrel brain in moments of crisis. I seem to always be the one present when a family member falls and cuts themselves really badly or has to have stitches and I am useless because squirrel brain is fast movement, no cognitive thought. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think about Peter, right? He's just going like, I don't know what's happening. I'm just going to act. Um, something needs to happen. But the reality is all of us instinctually respond different to uncharted areas in our experience of God. So when life is unclear, when we don't know what's happening, we, when we feel afraid, for many of us, we don't wait, we don't ask, we just act. I speak from experience. So when I feel fear, I'm going to fix it. When I feel insecure, I'm going to prove my worth. When I, when I need to be loved, I'm going to earn it. When I need clarity, I'm going to create it, right? Instead, this invites me, listening invites me to restrain my impulses, to restrain my need to please, to fill the void, to cover the fear. It invites me to wait. It invites me to sit, to turn off Netflix, to open my heart, my body, my mind, my soul to Jesus. And it is so counter me, but it is so necessary if I want to be someone who listens. Mm. Because then in that moment, my fears are squashed not by what I can do, but by who he says I am. And my insecurities are conquered not by my own achievements, but by his love that makes me whole. It's about listening. It's a long process. It doesn't come easy. But first and foremost, friends, this is what we are invited into. And as we do, transformation takes place. These are uncertain times, but they provide the perfect practice ground for listening to God. And that's what I want to invite you into this week and this lifetime. Let's be a people who learn to listen well, that we can stand with Jesus on that mountain and be transformed by the radiance of his reality, by the truth of his will, by the glory of his eternal creation and the intention he had for all of the world. We're gonna go into a time of worship now. Ty's gonna lead us. But let's sit with that. What are the obstacles you have when it comes to listening? That was just the spirit nudging <laughs> me that my time is done. Um, let's listen together. Let's worship together. Um, yeah.